danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 379 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. From Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And we are joined by... Matt Matros. From... Brooklyn, New York. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Of course, anytime. Thank you for coming back, in fact, I should say, because you were uh, previously on episode 301. Yes, I remember you had just hit your milestone, and now you're about to hit another one. Well, it's not about, but pretty soon you're going to hit the next one. Not as soon as you might think. They've they've been coming out a little more slowly than (laughs) than they were at one time. Um, But yeah, it's been almost exactly three years. It was uh, early July when when the episode aired early July of 2019. So uh, a lot has happened in those three years. Uh, Yes, that's true. (laughs) Very sadly. Uh, But you've been okay? I have been okay, yeah. I mean, um, certainly compared to the average person dealing with what we've had to deal with the past three years, I've been quite good, so I, I can't complain. It hasn't been fun, I don't think, for any of us, but uh, I, I personally have, have done just fine. Yeah, the way I've been putting that is uh, I've, I've been doing well, all things considered, but there's been a lot to consider. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, what's What's been happening poker-wise? Poker-wise, so... Um, for the past year and a half, I've been working on a new poker book, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about more as we go along. But it's called The Poker Brain, and uh, I'm pretty this happy is your with third it. Poker book. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, I, I wrote a um, a book called The Making of a Poker Player when I was kind of starting out as a semi pro, and it was sort of a memoir slash strategy beginner strategy book. Um, and I wrote that when I was in grad school for writing, and that focus on that book was really the storytelling of poker. And then I didn't write another poker book. I wrote a lot of card player columns over the years as I was playing, but um, I became a dad in 2017 and cut back on the playing quite a bit, but I was itching to re-engage with poker somehow, so I wrote a strategy book called The Game Plan, which is what I was talking about the last time I was on. Mm-hmm your podcast that one is the game plan is geared mostly toward recreational players who are looking for the quickest fix possible so that they have the most ev they can get against a tough field like if they wanted to enter a world series event in a week or something and didn't know what to do that's really who it's designed for and there's other stuff in that book that all players could really benefit from but it's really it was really aimed at recreational players the new book the poker brain is really aimed at all poker players and it's just about how to think about poker how to train your brain to think about what is most important in real time and I argue in the book that the way to do that is to study some subjects deeply away from the table but also to study them in more of a conceptual manner and not necessarily conceptual manner not necessarily memorizing a bunch of stuff and you can memorize but this book is not about giving you hundreds of pages of stuff to memorize it's more about concepts and i think that's something that most poker players if not all poker players would appreciate 
taking some time to think about. Yeah, I'm curious if this is something that you've encountered. You're, you're still doing like some some one-on-one coaching, right? I still do some one-on-one coaching, and I guess when you said what I've, what's been going on with me in poker, I should mention that I haven't played any brick-and-mortar poker since the pandemic, but I have played on the WSOP events and uh, online, and those have been fun. I, I enjoy those, but I'm definitely jonesing to get back into the, the real thing. But yes, anyway, to return to this new question, yes, um, I, I do have one-on-one uh, poker students. Absolutely, yes. So the, the reason I'm asking this, I'm curious if, if you've encountered this, because I've started to, to say it. You know, I think you and I, I guess you've been playing even longer than I have, but we have at this point where I feel like we're sort of of the same era uh, as is Carlos, of you know, the, the game theory stuff very much came second for us. Uh, the, you know, solvers didn't exist when, when we were learning, and we kind of learned everything heuristics first, and then after the fact, you sort of, you can gut check or change some of your heuristics, but you're very much using the tools as a as a corrective um, or, or a way of verifying or refining heuristics that you've already learned and used to become a successful poker player well before you ever uh, looked at a, a solver. And I'm starting to encounter now, it's not the norm, but I mean, I've encountered a few people who really are learning poker like a solver first. Um, and they these are people who have some kind of background in, um, often you know, formally in, in game theory, you know, they have a background in like economics or, or something where they've already uh, understood game theory concepts. And it... I'm not necessarily convinced it's the best way to go about it, but it's the way that they are going about it and, and you know, the way they've chosen to go about it, and I'm trying to, to help them with that. Um, but I'm curious if that's something that you've um, encountered at all and how, well, I'll, just, I'll stop there first. Is that something that you've encountered? Um, I've, I've definitely noticed that trend in the poker community in general. I can't say that my particular students have had that um, pattern of learning. I, most of my students have been around poker for a little while, so um, they don't really fall into the the new breed of solver first. But I, but I have seen it in the poker community in general, and I, I got to say, I maybe maybe some maybe that works for some people, but it's such a complicated thing to try to take on. I I know there was a piece in the New York Times, I believe it was, mm-hmm. about the modern poker era, and Jason Kuhn is quoted as saying something like. It's like memorizing a book that's 500,000 pages long. And I read that quote, and I was like, who could possibly do it? Maybe Jason Kuhn could do that, but I don't know anyone else who can really do that. And even if you could, isn't it, to me, it's more fun to just learn some ideas, and then maybe the solvers help you learn some exceptions to the ideas. But I think a lot of especially, um, I don't want to say recreational players, but a lot of solid players sort of start missing the forest for the trees a little bit when they get too deep into solver solutions because they they try to memorize an exact output for a very specific spot and they don't necessarily look at what the the general the, the general patterns in multiple many different solver solutions or just in you know studying the game um and sort of a kind of big picture level, which you often miss from solvers, which are not really looking at the big picture. They're solving a very particular math problem that is given to them. That's really all they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that is sort of the, um, I mean, I guess there are some people who are just very good at memorizing things, but I, I mean, I still feel like no matter how good you are at memorizing things, 
I mean, you're not going to memorize the 500,000 page book, right? Like, I, it's hard for me to believe. I, we have not had the chance to, to interview Jason Kuhn, but like, I mean, we've interviewed other like high roller players. It, I mean, they, they are still working off of heuristics. Like, they, of course, they, they, the details matter a lot more for them, and, and there is a, a greater element of memorization involved. And the heuristic, I mean, at some point, you're also kind of memorizing heuristics but um i mean no one's doing this purely off of, of memorization and I, mean, I don't think any of them would, would claim that they're like approximating well i mean some of them are approximating solvers because they're using real-time assistance but um <laughs> that aside you know i don't think any of them would, would claim that like unassisted they're approximating solvers in fact i think coon but certainly one of those guys you know has said that like anyone who could approximate a solver would be like a huge favorite in even in those like high roller tournaments yeah, I think a good approach if you are into memorization is to look at some of the most common spots that can come up. So maybe you, if you're a tournament player, you look at the 30-blind solution for button, small blind, big blind or something, and maybe you can memorize that really as closely as you possibly can because you know that's going to come up with high frequency. But trying to memorize all the stack sizes for all the different combinations of different positions is much harder. So I would say if you are a memorizer, I would focus on the spots that will come up the most and try to take as much as you can from them. Yeah. So you've you've been, I mean, just in terms of what you've been playing, you've been playing uh, strictly on on WSOP? You don't play on, like, ACR or Ignition or any of those other... um... Yeah, you don't have to tell me if I should be playing on ACR. I I haven't been because people, various people online and elsewhere were warning me off ACR and so I said, okay, well, if it's it's something I should be warned off of, then I'm not going to bother... Risking it, it's not that important to me that I'm playing online. Necessarily, I can I can wait for poker to come back, but this is all taken much longer than I thought it was going to. So uh, I've, I've sort of revisited um, the ACR question recently and wondered if I should be playing it. But yeah, for now, um, I, I was playing on a private site at some point during the pandemic. That site is gone now. Um, but that was sort of fun, too, because I was l- learning a bit about Omaha 8 cash games, which I didn't have... I thought I was experienced in, but I didn't realize until I played in these private games that I really didn't know how to play in, for example, shorthanded aggressive context. I, I grew up um, playing Limit Hold'em, but also occasionally jumping into the Omaha 8 game and, you know, Omaha 8 at, in the early 2000s in a casino with a 10-handed game was very simple. You basically sat around and waited for the nuts and collected your money. But... That's not at all what you do in a three-handed or four-handed aggressive game. So I learned a lot about Omaha 8 at some point in the pandemic. But um, the only tournaments I've played, yes, I've driven to New Jersey to various friends' houses and played the bracelet events, the ring events, etc. Had a couple of decent results. I came in second in a ring event earlier this year and had a bunch of great chances to win, but the cards didn't cooperate. And I did make a final table of a PLO bracelet event, I think, during the first online WSOP in 2020, and then I've had other runs at stuff and not hit anything. So it's been fun, but again, I'm looking to really get back into brick and mortar poker, and I'm hoping to do it um, at the end of this, at the end of June for this year's World Series. But we'll we'll see if if COVID is cooperating. I'm not jumping out there just yet. Well, I can tell you, nothing happens on ACR that's worth driving to New Jersey for. Um, <laughs> you know, the opportunity to sort of uh, 
play. I mean, I, I mostly just play Sunday tournaments. Um, the cash games seem extremely dusty. There's rumors that they're like bot infested. I'm not really in a position to, to comment on that part. But in any event, the, I don't think there's a lot of money to be made off of them unless you're on some sort of like high rate back program or something, um, which is not something I'm interested in. I haven't really been really looked into that because I'm not going to be that kind of high-volume cash game grinder. Uh, so I, I don't think there's money to be made in, in like the no-limit cash games. I have no idea what the 08 situation looks like. I would, I would guess it's not good. <laughs> I'd be very surprised if there are like juicy 08 games running on there, but maybe there are. Um, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a big grinder either, obviously, but um, ACR, I wouldn't have to drive to New Jersey, I don't think. That, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it, it may be here. worth it just because the... Uh, the the threshold for getting started is so low. Right, and I saw recently they had some huge tournament on there with like a big guarantee or something. So I don't know if they're trying to get me and people like me into the fold or something, but uh, we'll see. If, um, if if it comes to that, I will jump into ACR at some point. But well, I think yeah, what you really yeah. want you want you, you want to give Carlos a chance to convince you to play ignition. Oh, okay, sounds good. Sadly, I don't think he can from new york oh. but i'm not 100 percent sure about that that sounds um, right to me too carlos but yeah we can double check yeah yeah i would definitely check because if you can get on that site it's literally free money <laughs> well i like free money <laughs> yeah acr is um um much tougher um than ignition and i would say um Ignition is going to be a fair bit softer than WSOP.com. So, um, other than you know the few pros that you uh, run into in those tournaments late, um, I would say that site is pretty soft as well. So just imagine the early stages of a WSOP.com tournament is like the final table of an Ignition One K buy-in. Okay, that makes sense. That sounds good. Yeah, WSOP.com events are relatively tough, I would say. I mean, um, they're not like crazy high roller tough or anything, but there's there's almost always at least a, a handful of good players at the table whenever I'm, whenever I'm at. Uh, and there's like one or two fish usually contributing, but um, yeah. they're Even they're, early? Um, no, early maybe it's a bit more, but yeah, as... As you move along, it, it gets kind of tough on WSP.com. It's not, I mean, I've done okay there, so I don't think it's, like, ridiculously impossible or anything. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm, mostly I'm, I've found them, I've been relatively surprised by how tough they were. Although, I wonder if the bracelet events might be slightly softer at people who just happen to be casually in Vegas or firing up the online while they're there. I mean, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, that may be the case because around this time last year, um, I started playing the. They last year they did a couple of circuit events online before the WSOP, and I did not. I mean, this is kind of results oriented, but I did not have much success in the circuit events. Although I didn't recognize a lot of the players, there were a lot of unknown players to me that were fairly good. But then when the bracelet events came around the next month, um, I would say the earlier parts of those tournaments kind of felt like ignition to me. And then like the end of those tournaments was just like, you know, torture. So it's probably like, if I had to guess, the bracelet events are probably soft at the beginning and tough at the end. And the circuit events are probably just somewhat medium throughout. 
Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty accurate assessment. One wrinkle I might hope for, I don't know if it'll be true or not, is I think you're right, they'll be softer first, the bracelet events, and then get tougher. But hopefully, maybe around the time of the main event, as Vegas really gets flooded with yeah more players, maybe those will soften up a bit more. But I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, and, and you've probably been playing some of the um, the um, regular events that aren't, you know, um, marquee events at all. I imagine those are probably pretty tough. Uh, yeah, they are. Um, I've been mostly mostly heading out for the, you know, they have circuit events. They've had them all the time, it seems like. But yes, they also have, there's, also, there's always some other series going on, like the spring online championship, the summer online, the, just the online championship. So they always throw some label on something <laughs> and have some event going. So uh, yeah, basically I just show up at a friend's place on Sunday and see what's happening. And there's always like two or three tournaments worth playing. So um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we'll see. That that spring online championship thing is a yeah. great example of what I was talking about. That might be the toughest they do because it doesn't give any shiny jury if you win. So it doesn't attract too many players that are looking for that sort of thing. I think it's just like you and Tony Donson and, like, <laughs> and, and all the other people like him who are just kind of, uh, you know, grinding those sort of things. Um, yeah. But well, I will like, say... Anytime, we're recording this on uh, uh, Thursday, June 2nd, and I will say I was considering, I'm playing the bracelet event on Sunday, and I was considering also playing the online championship 1K6 Max that's happening at the same time, and you've just <laughs> talked me out of it. So I Yeah, that sounds later. That sounds pretty dusty to me. <laughs> like, anything, it, like, it, it's gotta, it's gotta reward, like, you know, some jewelry, or, like, at least a hidden mob entry. And if it doesn't, if all it pays is money, then it's just you and the killers. Yeah, I, th- I think I'll skip that one. Uh, I mean, obviously, tournaments to some extent have this dynamic anyway of you're getting tougher as you get deeper into it. And I think sometimes people underestimate that. Or I mean, cash games can be like this as well, where people judge a good game based on you know I encountered uh, a few players playing terribly, and therefore this was a really soft tournament. Or, or you know, the, the the games at uh, such and such casino are really soft because I, I played with a fish there once or something. Uh, but I think you know, tournaments even more so. It really matters what is it going to look like at, at the end. Um, you know, just having some soft players early in the field is. Not, I think a lot of people overestimate how much of an advantage they're they're gaining from the presence of soft players in in the field, and obviously that's like much much more true. And this is the thing uh, again. I think a lot of people really underestimate with uh, re-entries. You know how much. So there is the general sense of like re-entries are, are unfair for professional players and make it too easy for them to win or something, but I think people misunderstand, like, their reasons for that are wrong. It, it's not that, like, re-entering gives you an, an unfair chance of getting first place. It, the, the problem is that, like, the, the better players re-enter and the weaker players don't, and the extent to which that makes the games t- it's sort of like, you get to play in some pretty soft, like, $1, $2 games, but your prize for winning the $1, $2 game is playing <laughs> in a really tough 5100 game. And, you know, like, if, if you can't hack it in that 5100 game then it's like the fact that you're a huge favorite in the one two game is really not that important i a million percent agree with all of that i mean people tend to look at something like the main event even of the world series yeah. and they look at their first table and they say well there's three or four stacks of dead money here and me i'm just a kind of a solid tournament grinder and you know they're they're just adding 
it's essentially like, you know, there's ten people at the table, let's say, or nine people at the table, let's say, and five of them are competing for all the money, therefore I must have some kind of edge because there's all that dead money in there. And that's just not the way it works. I mean, once you lose those fish, all of a sudden it gets really tough, and you're not on equal footing playing against pros and really, really good pros, not just pros, but all the poker's best players in the world pretty much play the main event. And you have to go against them for days, usually. And so, all of a sudden, maybe you're completely dead money now. I mean, it's hard to be totally dead in <laughs> poker if you know what you're doing, but... I mean, it, I think the, the results of the main event bear that out, right? <laughs> like, tr- truly no one is, is completely dead money in the main event. Yeah, no, I mean, well, you get, it's law of large numbers, no, right? I, There's I, always I a chance. Like, you, if you've got thousands of fish in there, you know, one or two of them are probably going to get through, but... Um, but to say that you have an edge because there's thousands of fish is just not true, especially not the kind of edges that people... Maybe it's true that you're, you know, slightly plus EV or something, but people think the main event is this gold mine for casual players, and I, I just don't see it. I mean, and yeah, the results bear it out to some extent, but if you also, if you look at the guy who won, I mean, Corey Aldemir, just an absolutely fantastic player. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes winners are not the best, but most of, most of the people who have won the main event are usually pretty good. Yeah, that's all I was. Uh, I think they're like they're not truly dead money in the sense that we have seen extremely weak players win the main event, even in like somewhat recent years. Yep. Um, but you're right; that is fully a law of large numbers thing. And and I mean, certainly those people are not plus EV in, in the tournament. They just you know wasted all their life one run gut in one spot. <laughs> well, they didn't really waste it though. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I mean, it's not it has not turned out great for all of those folks. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I did finally remember the thing I, I wanted to mention a while ago, which is um, with regard to like the, the title of your book, even, or if I understood the, the, the thrust of it from the part that I've looked over, um, it reminded me of a concept that I remember encountering in, I guess it's probably an element of poker, but from, from Tommy Angelo anyway. He talks about the idea of idealistic extremes, and he kind of paints this picture of like, what would the ideal poker player look like uh, you know like what kinds of things would they do how would they behave how would they think and i guess we, i mean we sort of talked on this already of like is the ideal poker player a person who has you know a po server database memorized i think not um but, but for him of course it was more kind of um what's your table presence like and what's your behavior like and, and that kind of thing but it seemed like you were kind of starting from a similar premise there of sort of how how would you ideally want to be thinking and how do you move closer towards that? I mean, not that you're going to suddenly become that, that ideal, but starting from that point of, you know, what would it, what would you, if you could always be thinking your best, um, what would that look like? Is that a fair, uh, did, did I, did I take your meaning correctly there? Yeah, that's completely fair. Uh, the book is called the poker brain, improving your, process at the table through optimal and exploitive thinking. And I took a second to say all that because I was from memory. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, yeah, it's it's about trying to do the best we can to think about the things in real time that we should be thinking about. And yeah, I mean, it's great if you could, if you could turn your brain to a solver, that's certainly quite useful. But I also argue in the book that there's times you want to move to a more exploitive framework where something happens at the table and um, you want to maybe move a little bit away from what you think an optimal strategy might look like. And I identify three different types of exploiting you can do in the book. I, I call them 
exploiting situations, exploiting opponents, and exploiting tendencies. And by that, I just mean you can exploit, if there's fish, you can kind of exploit them at all times. So if there's someone who really just doesn't, doesn't have the first clue of what they're doing, then trying to apply the solver solution to them is almost silly. I mean, you can almost certainly find better ways to take their money. Um, but having said that, it's good that you know what a solver might do because it helps you to identify the exact ways you can maximize your winnings against them. And I think a lot of people miss that. I mean, everyone wants to play against fish, but not everyone really takes full advantage of them. They don't necessarily value bet them thin enough or they are afraid to ever bluff them, even though they, their range is so wide, they simply have to fold a bunch. Uh, so there's that. And then with situations, I, I mean, I think there's there are many times, especially in tournaments, where the population in general is playing in a way that we can exploit. And so that, I talk about that a bit in the book. And then for tendencies, that's the kind of high-level stuff where you notice that an opponent does something that's very subtle, but probably incorrect they're maybe betting too many too too polarized range or not polarized enough or they are sizing a certain way with certain hands and not with others and you and eventually you pick up on something like that and you want to use that information so that's not that's not an ex, that's not something you can exploit at all times against them but you kind of log something like that into your brain and then you if you notice it coming up again you kind of switch over to that other framework. So that's the kind of stuff I talk about in the book, and I think you summarized pretty well what I'm trying to do there. And one big way I try to do it is I have a lot of example hands from real play. I have, I have 39 example hands where I think a lot of these concepts are playing out, and I, I try to use those hands to show how... Because a lot of this stuff can sound pretty theoretical a lot of the time if you're studying solvers or if you're studying poker. And people sometimes miss the forest for the trees. They, they, they understand... Or they've read a bunch of solver outputs, but when they get into an actual hand, they kind of freeze up or they are not necessarily thinking about it the right way. And I think using real hands to illustrate some of these ideas is, for me anyway, that's the way I learn poker. And, hope, and I think that's the way a lot of people can learn it as well. Yeah, and uh, as it happens, one of those hands is a hand that you and I played together in the, um, was the Crazy Eights tournament in the 2019 WSOP, which I guess was the yes. last WSOP for both of us. Yeah, it's funny. We played this hand together shortly after. I think it was. It might have even been the day that that podcast episode you referenced came out. <laughs> if it wasn't, it was very close. Yeah. Because uh, we, we had recorded it a few weeks before my book, The Game Plan, had come out. And then we actually played together on day two and didn't know that we were playing against <laughs> each other. <laughs> and then we saw the table draw for day three. And I, we said, oh, we're sitting next to each other. Great, and then we got to the table. I'm like, "Oh, you! You're that guy from yesterday." So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was pretty fun. But I'd love to talk about this hand because I think it's quite interesting, actually. And I'm sort of been wanting to talk to you about it for three years, so I'm, I'm glad we'll, we'll get into it a little bit. Um, and I'm curious, uh, especially to hear. I mean, I think Carlos may have uh, some additional. Or I, I feel like of the two of us, anyway, Carlos is more of the like. ICM expert here, so I'll, I'll be curious to hear his takes. I mean, I've, I've put this through a, a sovereign. We can talk about my process for doing that also, potentially. But this was, I mean, this is occurring on day three of, there's what, 27 people remaining? We're like, we're at three tables at this point. Does that sound right? Oh, no. I think, unfortunately, we're deeper than that. This was a, this was a massive tournament. I think we started the day with like 
hundred ish people left, and so we might be we're a little shorter than that, but we definitely weren't down to three tables. Okay. Yeah, I can check my hand in mob to see where I finished because I, I, I unfortunately I busted shortly after. I think you did too. I think neither of us made it too far after this hand. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, but I, I lost a lot of chips to you on this hand. Yeah, <laughs> as it turned out, yeah, <laughs> I, but I didn't do anything with them. I just gave them to someone else a few hands later. So. Um, okay, but anyway, I mean, we are we are relatively deep in the tournament, but I guess oh, yeah. that, that yes. does make an important difference um, in terms, you know, like the, the final three tables. There's going to be a, a more significant uh, ICM factor than you know final five or six tables. But particularly, I mean, I know we were just talking about these tournaments are not necessarily as, as soft getting down to it. But, I mean, for a WSOP event, this was, uh, I mean, there were plenty of good players left in the field. But I think we're both probably anticipating, like, still having a decent edge even coming into the, the final couple of tables, which is another reason why we may want to err a little bit on, a, um, on the side of, of risk aversion, all things equal. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. Uh, I probably should do that more when I play. I try to I try to force myself to err on the other side and not overrate my own abilities because I don't want to go too far and then all of a sudden be the one who doesn't have an edge because I'm passing on all of the edges. But having said that, yeah, at this point in the tournament, there were probably still some weaker players there. Although, honestly, this deep, it, it, I mean, it had gotten at least somewhat tough. It, it, was, it was a very soft tournament for a long time. But at this point in the event, it, it, you know, it was um, it was tough. I mean, look, there was you and I were there. The guy next to me seemed like he knew what he was doing. The, the other, there was actually a third player in this hand briefly, um, and he seemed to know what he was doing. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't. It, it was it was a soft field at that point, but it wasn't ridiculously soft. And by the way, I'm finding this crazy eights my result now. I I finished um, 69th. So and that was so there were probably about 75 or maybe even 80 players left at this point. And so for me, ICM is not a huge deal at that stage because um, yeah, the, we are the so far from the big pay jumps. Like, there's really no pay jumps to speak of for many tables yet. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that we are, you and I both are probably favorites over the field should come into this a little bit. But, you know, this hand is a, is a 25-ish blind stack size hand. I just don't know how much risk aversion you can do when, when you're playing that short. But, we'll, we, we, but that, it could come up, so we'll see. Yeah, and you know, I actually missed even on. I, mean, I remember this hand happening. I didn't really remember all the the details. I didn't remember that there was a third player, and, and in fact, I even missed that. Although you stated quite clearly <laughs> in your book, when I was like skimming the book just now, I also missed that. So when I say that I've run this, I ran it on the assumption that we were heads up to the flop, and, and the big blind had not overcalled, which is a, a um, you know, not a trivial detail. Yeah, as as did I. Um, are there good solvers that? They run multi-way flaps. This is I'll show a little of my own ignorance here. I, is, is that something that we can even analyze very well with three people? Yeah, there is a tool called Simple Three Way um, for okay. the same people to do like simple pre-flop and simple post-flop. And uh, it is I've never used it myself. I've seen it used to good effect. I don't really know um, exactly how how res- I mean, I, my understanding is it's very resource intensive to do. You know, does that mean the solves take days? I, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so yeah. The, the tool does exist. Is, is the short answer? Gotcha. Yeah, when I ran, yeah, I, I kind of got rid of the the big blind as well. He ends up folding on the flop, so I didn't think it would affect the analysis too much. And also, his range is just so much weaker than either of ours that I didn't think it would be a huge factor on what the solver wanted from the flop action. But I mean, who knows, right? <laughs> um, I 
I haven't used simple um, three-way myself, but um, um, our mutual friend um, uh, OMC um, uses it, and I don't think it's too resource intensive. He he has a um, you know one of these like souped-up poker computers, but um, any computer that can um, run PO, I imagine, can run um, simple three-way. Yeah, I mean, for me, whether I'm, I can run PO is a question of what kind of, like, so when I tried to run this hand, I, I was like, okay, well, you know, this is a heads up, uh, I, let's, let's, let's tell people the hand before you're talking about it. Yeah, good it. idea. <laughs> um, so this was, uh, I actually don't even remember what my stack size was here. I, I did cover you because I was not uh, eliminated at, at this point. Um, so we have, the blinds are, are 80 and 160K. It's a big blind anti-tournament. It's eight-handed because crazy eights. And uh, I opened under the gun. Um, you were next to act with 3.7 million, so you have, like, as you said, 25-ish big blinds. Um, I, I want to say I had maybe, like, 5 or 6 million at that point. It might even have been a little bit more than that. But, I mean, I, I think I, I covered you by a, a, a fair bit, but also that, um, you know, I, I felt a lot less confident about my <laughs> prospects in the tournament after losing the spot. So the 3.7 million was not trivial to me. Yeah, that that's basically right. I don't remember your exact stack size, but certainly you covered me by more than a little, but not by so much that you were still going to be, you know, in really good shape afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I opened under the gun for a min raise with King Jack offsuit. Um, I don't remember what I had a heart, although that does end up being a slightly important detail. Um, I opened under the gun with King Jack offsuit. You're next to act with uh, King Queen of Clubs and 25 big blinds. Uh, you called. Is there um, is there a world where you re-raise here? Or do you think this is just always a call? Well, it's funny you ask that because in 2019. My strategy for this very specific spot of being an early position against an early position raise with these pretty shallow but not super shallow stacks was that I was actually not having a three-bet range at all. So I get into this in the book a little bit, how I like to make approximations to solver solutions that make my life easier. But in 2019, I actually hadn't really looked at solver solutions. So I was sort of doing my own approximations to make my life easier. And rather than try to come up with a flatting range and a three-bet range there, I figured I would just do one or the other. And I thought, well, people squeeze a lot unnecessarily, and I can have some deception value and stuff, so I'm just going to flat every hand I want to play here. So, And this this went into my thinking a little bit on an actual hand, too. And I don't, by the way, I don't make this, I make a different approximation now. Now, in fact, I three-bet everything I play here. But um, back in 2019, I was flatting everything I was playing. So, um no, if once you open there with my stack size at the time, the way I was playing in 2019 was I was either flatting or folding. And I don't, again, I don't recommend that necessarily now that we have, have seen more solver solutions and we know that the way you get value from your big hands here is to three bet more. But I actually think having played this way for a while helped me to gain some exploitive tricks because it doesn't do you can induce squeezes and you can induce you can like be deceptive about how strong your hand is and so there's some fun things that happen when you play this way but it's it, having said that it's not the way i play now this is one of those things when we talk about you know maybe being a little bit more risk averse where when you look so you know i'm, I'm looking now at, at a preflop solver output which if we assumed everyone at the table had 25 big blinds which they didn't and it matters right. that they didn't but um that's you know, for, as an approximation looking at that 
the, uh, the salver would never make a small three bet with king queen suited. It mostly calls, and then it has a very tiny um, shoving range that is like a little bit of king queen suited, a little bit of ace king offsuit, and a little bit of pocket tens. Um, so, <laughs> right. Like, exactly. Uh, That's the kind of stuff I don't like. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Imitate, so, yeah. Um, but I do kind of you know if we looked at a different hand like uh, king ten suited or ace nine suited or hands that are mixing even ace king offsuit uh, mixing between a, a call and a three bet and it is one of those things where I wonder in a tournament uh, although it's not even necessarily obvious that like which of those is the lower variance option <laughs> calling versus three betting um, but I, I don't I guess I'm curious Carlos in particular if, if you have thoughts on like is is there a lower variance option here between like calling or three betting some of those hands that I mentioned? Um, I don't know if it's lower variance or not, but um, I call a lot in this spot, um, kind of like Matt used to do, um, primarily because um, if I'm at this table, I imagine there's some weaker spots than you at this table. And so I don't want to three bet you and play this hand against like one of the few good players at the table when I can flat and allow, you know, some of the uh, weaker players to um, come in. So if this is a, a, a tougher table, then yeah, I'm probably going to like try to do more of this um, solver stuff mentioned. But uh, just as a as a rule, I'm not going to be, you know, three betting a good player raising from early position from um, the next seat over um, at most tables because I imagine like I'm not going to make a ton of money versus you in the long run in this spot um, so I'd rather um, not price out the weaker players at the table now I don't know if that's going to be more um, uh, higher variance or not I'm glad to hear that because that's about how I think about it as well. And I think that is also kind of getting to Matt's point of um, people, I mean, maybe they, they squeeze for no good reason or there's lots of different mistakes they could make behind you. But you do want to consider when you're under the gun plus one, you don't want to be trying to just craft, craft an exploitative strategy against the under the gun raiser. There are six other people at the table to think about as well. And how, you know, are they going to overcall well? Are they going to squeeze well or too much or not enough? I mean, those are really important drivers of either the EV of your early position um, calling or, or three betting or raising decisions. Yeah, and I do think you make the player's life behind you significantly easier if you are three betting here because then pretty straightforward. If you have a big hand, you play, and if you don't, you fold. Whereas if you flat, you let them make all kinds of other mistakes. So maybe I'll revert back to my old style again. Who knows? It worked out. <laughs> you know what? If you uh, if you are able to get on ignition, you definitely will. Because <laughs> <right. laughs> on ignition, like when I when I think about this spot on ignition, if I flat here, people will flat behind with like queen 10 offsuit. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't want to like price that guy out. <laughs> These are really good points. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so I've, I've opened under the gun with king jack offsuit. Matt has called under the gun plus one with king queen spades. And then the big blind overcalls. Although, I mean, we'll talk about the significance of that, but as I said, the, the solve that I've used did not have, uh, have them in the pot. Um, this, this isn't this doesn't really matter, but he had clubs, not spades. Oh, I'm sorry. That does matter a touch because there's a club on the flop. Um, That's so, true. Yeah, I, That's I true. So we, we go to the flop, and there's now, uh, that's going to be 7.5 
big blinds in in the pot and 23 or so and actually even a touch less than that but uh, about that in in the pot and uh, the flop is queen of hearts four of hearts four of clubs the big blind checks which i imagine they're supposed to be doing with their entire range uh and now the action is on me with king jack offsuit uh in a heads up pot the the solver is telling me i'm indifferent if i have a heart in my hand but that i should never bet if i do not have a heart um i mean i do think it's a little bit relevant that the big blind is in here maybe not as much at this stack depth but i mean matt you and i neither of us is terribly likely to be holding a four uh the big blind overcalling can have a little bit more four x in their range and just having a third player in the pot in general who could have a queen or something i mean certainly my c betting frequency is supposed to be lower here when the big blind is in the pot than when they are not and even at equilibrium it's not terribly high so the sovereign only has me betting like 25 percent of the time even if you and i are heads up and i think that number can only go down if the big blind is also in the pot that's funny uh the saw that i ran had you see betting even less often than that and i'm not sure where what assumptions we made differently i'm sure it's just got to do with which ranges that the solver is having us uh carry forward there um but i would say if, if you knew that my range was as strong as it was that if i have all the aces and kings um yeah, and queens in my range what's that yeah then then you're certainly supposed to be checking significantly often um and again this is part of the reason i used to like this plan is because you got the deceptive value um but i mean i definitely understand understood why you bet it. Like, i think i've i've even heard you on the podcast talk about how a lot of players will miss this bet if they don't have a hand. They they'll forget that like people are flatting too wide and stuff. But that I think I do think a check is probably probably better for you. I mean, if you know if you knew what my range was, checking is definitely better. And if you if you even if you're just guessing at my range, you know that my range is not going to be like some weak flatters range that you might see from right. someone else in the field. I mean, I flatted you under the gun range from the next seat. Like I I just have to have something there. Um, so. So yeah, I, I think um, a pretty high frequency of checks makes sense for you. But I, having said that, if you are going to have a betting range, some king jack, king jack with a heart certainly makes sense to be a semi bluff. I mean, you have the you aren't, there aren't going to be too many other good candidates to just bet fold, and this three straight with the backdoor flush draw makes some sense. Now we don't know if you had a heart or not, right? Well, I'm I'm the host of the show, so we're just going to portray me in the best possible light <laughs> going forward. Uh, so we're going to pretend the big blind wasn't in the pot. We're going to pretend I had a heart, and okay. my play is 100% defensible. Right. So for your size. Um, now, the Zavar is on board with my size. So I will say really? the only sizes that I looked oh. at... The, the, yeah, the, this, is, this is significant, actually. The only sizes that I looked at were um, half pot, the geometric growth of the pot were all in. Um, geometric growth of the pot ends up being a little like, fairly close to pot. Um, what I actually bet was was half pot. And this comes back to my point about whether my computer can run PO. Um, I initially tried to also include a min bet as an option, and it was you know essentially the, the tree was too large. I had to I had to trim the tree a little bit and and get rid of one of the uh, early street sizes in, in order to make the the tractable. So in terms of like whether I could run three way, I, I mean I maybe it's just like a, a much more efficient engine. But my guess is that like in order to run run it, I would have to have you know, significantly fewer sizing options available to each player in order to get the size of the tree down. Yeah, that makes sense. And also when um, I mentioned about the size should be 
um, smaller, I was still thinking about a three-way pot. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I did, in fact, bet half pot even in a three-way pot. I did not understand multi-way pots as well as I do now. So I think that you, I think you're right. that In the real-life scenario, the size was certainly a mistake. Um, heads up, within the constraints of the tree that I used, it is the only bet size that the solver is really using. You know, it's not making the, the near pot bet. It's not shoving, which makes sense to me on, on a board like this, which is... Um, well, I mean, A, I don't have a big range advantage, and, and B, there's not a lot of hands that are, like, obviously benefiting from shoveling a lot of money in the pot early. And that and that makes a lot of sense with what Matt was saying, where is if, if you're using bigger sizing here, then your frequency of checking should be higher as well. Yeah. Um, so I did bet half the pot. Uh, Matt there holding king-queen um, seems like a pretty straightforward call. I certainly think so, yeah. Salver agrees. Um, so now the big blind folded. Uh, we are officially heads up on the turn. And the turn is the eight of spades. Uh, there is now 1,300 in the pot and um, 1,975 in the effect, or sorry, this is in, in Sovereign World. <laughs> There's uh, 1,300 in the pot, 1,975 in the effective stacks. In, in real life, I guess the SPR was, was lower, which maybe will make my river play a little bit more defensible. Um, I have King Jack with a heart, and the board is Queen 448 with two hearts. Uh, I'm, I checked here, which the Salver also wants to, a, a pure check um i mean i think when i'm when i'm betting the flop with king jack i'm sort of rooting for one of two things to happen obviously the best would be if if everyone just went away and gave me the pot uh the second best would be if i improve my hand in some way i mean i could make a pair i could pick up a flush draw i could pick up a straight draw when none of those things happen uh, i certainly don't have the kind of range advantage that enables me to just like keep blasting through with with um with absolutely nothing yeah, I definitely agree with that. And this turn decision is actually the reason I included this hand in the book at all. My turn decision, I mean, because um, it seems like, oh, I have top pair, it got checked me, I have a shortish stack, I should bet, is kind of the autopilot thinking. But I wanted to at least consider another way to play this hand, which is that to think about your range overall and to think about the next street. And so if I'm betting... All of my top pairs are better here after you check the turn. Then, if I, what happens when I check back? What happens when I have two jacks, two tens, two nines, which I probably made it this far with those hands? Um, that's going to be my check back range essentially, along with maybe, maybe some. I guess I got some ace king with like the flush door, or even the back door. Flush door probably gets this far. Um, but even that, I'm not sure if I'm checking those back if I if I got to this stage. Um, who knows? I mean, I might check back some of them. But the, the point is simply that my check back range overall is going to be pretty weak if I don't have any top pair kind of hands in it. And I want to protect the possibility of it going check, check, and you then bombing away on the river. Um, and so I thought with me having a queen in my hand uh, I could get value from stuff like if I if I if I, if I had instead aces or kings which are in my range again uh, I could try to get value from some queens that you've decided to now check the turn with um, but but holding a queen myself it seemed like a sort of an ideal hand to put in the, the check back bucket as I call them in the book when you th put your range into buckets that you want to 
have certain plans for going forward, it seemed reasonable to protect my check back range by including this hand in it. And the solver I ran anyway seemed to at least think that wasn't crazy. It didn't say it was like a pure check or anything, but it seemed to think that it was pretty indifferent between checking and betting with my hand. But regardless of what the solver says, that that's the concept I wanted to introduce in the book is thinking about your range protecting yourself in future streets. And this is kind of what the book is trying to do is to not necessarily tell you this is how you play poker, but this is this is how you can think about poker and maybe come up with a play you might not have otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and at least the, the way that I uh, solved it, it's showing you indifferent if you do not have a heart and technically indifferent when you have a heart, although there's a much stronger ten- trend towards, I mean, it'd have to be the king of hearts because the queen is on the board, but when you have king, queen with the king of hearts, there's a much stronger trend toward checking, which makes sense because a heart river is now much less bad for you if you, I mean, not that you're making a flush, but I mean, if you do face a large bet on a heart river, you can feel better calling that when the king of hearts is in your hand, of course, than when it is not. Yeah, you're looking at all the king queens then, the king king queen off and king yes. queen suited. Yeah, okay. oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, because you have king queen of clubs, um, which of course does not contain <laughs> the king of hearts. Um, yeah, in, in terms of like how to to, to think about this, the um, I often think of it in terms of like how are you making money by checking here as opposed to. Um, so I mean, yeah, like yes, you're going to have other hands that that you want to to check. Uh, and I know you know this. I'm just kind of saying this for for the sake of listeners. You know, it, it's not just about like, well, in, in some other situation, I might have jacks, and so it's important for me to like demonstrate to people that I will check here with king queen, so that I don't get abused when I have jacks or something like that. I mean, it is that the fact that you might be checking with hands like jacks or nines or eights gives me incentive to bluff the river sometimes and consequently like you can make money that you wouldn't make by betting like when you have a hand like king queen that's going to feel pretty good about calling most i mean we can imagine like any ace is a bad river of course um i think other than that uh you you, i mean even a heart river i think as long as it's not an ace i think you can still pretty comfortably call a shove so you're not really in danger of getting blown off of your equity by by checking unless you get that one disastrous river and what the check is going to do, like if you bet, um, I'm not really, you know, a lot of the hands that I would pay you off with, I'm, I can probably put the same money in on the river anyway, since since we're so shallow, you're not really like missing out on value by checking here, because most of that value you're going to get anyway on the river. And the, the potential is there for you to potentially get value that you would not get by betting if it induces me, like I may improve my hand on the river, which is exactly what happened. Um, I may bluff the, the river thinking that you're or trying to target a weaker portion of your range. And so you know, the, 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 like I'm incentivized then to you know, throw money into the pot with a hand that would like this one that would just be check folding if you were to bet now. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. And I, I try to address that question, that specific question, actually, in the book somewhat, which is, why are you trying to worry about your overall range? You're only going to play this hand once. The other people at the table aren't going to see like, you know, what you're doing exactly. It doesn't really matter. And my response would be pretty similar to what you said. And additionally, um, I would say that, you know, if, if, you, if you're thinking in terms of ranges, you just stay less predictable overall. And being... Playing in a way that everyone kind of, if you're playing the way everyone assumes you're playing, then it's going to come back to haunt you, even if you don't necessarily realize it. Um, and so, in in this particular case, yeah, like you're saying, there's two ways that you can make money from a hand like this. You can bet it for value and get called by a worse hand, or you can induce a bluff. And there's that's you know, of course, often the case in poker. And 
here where it's clear that the hands that I can, with aces and kings, there's some very clear hands that will give me value, namely a queen that you might have played this way. But when I, when I block the queen, when I hold the queen myself, there aren't as many worse hands for you to call me with. And yes, I'm not really that worried about free cards because I have one overcard. And in fact, you're discussing with this hand with some players later. Some people came up with the um, idea of a turn strategy for betting betting queen jack but checking ace queen and king or dips maybe checking king queen ace queen maybe was more of a bet to try to get value from king queen or something i'm not sure but anyway the idea was that the the, the free card the the queen jack is more worried about giving a free card now the solver solution i saw didn't really buy that argument but but again it's not necessarily about that it's about trying to think about things like this and seeing if they make sense for the context yeah I, I think the problem you start to run into so like what i'm looking at has you indifferent to betting queen jack but uh it does have you pure checking queen 10 suited which it, it is putting some of that into your range um and so i mean the, the problem you start to run into with the weaker kickers is yes they are they're more vulnerable to free cards by checking but they're also more vulnerable to like there are fewer second best hands <laughs> that can pay off the queen jack yep. or queen 10 and like there's no reason i couldn't have king queen or ace queen here yeah um, so exactly you, you do start to run into like is this a hand that you actually want to put your stack in with yeah, totally. I mean, it's there's really nothing. When you get to Queen Ten, there's almost nothing worse that can call. Right. So that 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 does become a problem. Yeah. Um, so it goes check check here, which is uh, good, and the river brings an offsuit king. So the heart draw has missed, uh, and this is a disaster for me um, because I have now rivered top pair at the same time that Matt has rivered two pair, and this is part of what you accomplish by checking behind on the turn, right? Not just inducing bluffs, but also like I would have just check folded the king jack to a turn bet. Now, I mean, there may have been some rivers I would have bluffed also, but you know, what ended up happening here is you left open this possibility and I mean of course it's it's lucky that this river came but at the same time like everything that happens in poker is luck and your strategy has to build in you know various lucky or unlucky potential outcomes and you wanted to be you know that's how you win a tournament is you put yourself in a position to profit uh, maximally when things do fall your your way and so the fact that you know this is a scenario that could emerge this is baked into the EV of checking behind king queen on the turn yeah, and I can't say that at the table I was consciously thinking about this particular run-out option where you have a king in your hand and no pair currently and you're going to catch up on the... Like, that. that's a pretty unlikely scenario, so it wasn't foremost in my thinking. But yeah, in general, I was thinking about, well, free cards aren't necessarily bad, and yeah, as it as it turns out, this is, this is a really good um, card for me, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's sort of... Uh, happens naturally, hopefully, if you're thinking strategically and thinking about your range, even if you're not going to think, well, you know, if maybe you probably wouldn't be thinking about King Jack necessarily, but maybe you say something like, well, if Andrew has ace-king, maybe he can hit a king. I think he's good. Who knows? Um, but yeah, so you then moved all in uh, on this card for, I believe it was a little bigger. I know in your solver, it's like one and a half times the pot. Yeah. In real life, I don't think it was quite that. It was an over bet, but it, it wasn't one and a half. It was more like 1.2, I think, mm -hmm. times the pot, something yeah, like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I probably have to apologize a little for a slow roll because I thought about this for a little while. <laughs> uh, I, I do remember being a little peeved, but like, once you were in the tank, I was like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> because it. I mean, I never was really seriously considering folding, but some my opponent has just overbet 
all in on the river, you know, on day three of the yeah, World no, Series. You, of you should absolutely and think I, about it. And I know my opponent's a good player, and I'm just kind of going through the whole thought process. And um, honestly, my my thinking in 2019 was not as advanced as it is now. I don't. I wouldn't say. And so, honestly, my, this trip to the World Series, because remember, I hadn't played much serious poker since my son had been born in 2017. This was my first trip to the, the World Series since then in, in 2019. And so. Um, I wanted to make sure I didn't have the rust on my game, but also I hadn't really been exposed to a lot of the new kind of solver strategies and sizings and stuff. And so just a few years earlier, an overbet on the river, that was the nuts. Like, that, that was never, like, not the nuts. Um, so that's what... So I was saying that this this was not the reason I called. I probably would have ended up calling anyway, but in thinking in thinking it over at the time... What made me comfortable calling was that I had seen Andrew play a hand the day before, and I don't remember all the details, but I'm pretty sure it was a paired board, and Andrew overbet the river and got called, and he showed two queens, and they were good. And I was like, ah, okay, so this player is good enough to make, not knowing it was Andrew at the time, just knowing it was this guy, um, I was like, this, this player is good enough to make a big bet for value on the river without having the nuts, which... I know that solvers tell you to do that, but even in 2019, in that field, most people did not have that weapon in their in their um, arsenal. Most most people just did the you know I bet half the pot or I bet small trying to get paid or whatever. You did not see like relatively thin value, and by thin I mean non nut hands essentially um, making over bets and trying to get called on scaryish boards. Um, and so knowing that Andrew was capable of that. I thought to myself, okay, well, I definitely think he could have ace-king here and be playing it for value. Therefore, I can't possibly fold if I can beat value bets. But I was very worried that you were going to turn over two aces and that was going to be the end of it. So, Yeah, that's, um, I mean, obviously I, I would play aces this way. But I, I mean, I think the, the from a solver's perspective, there's two things that, that make your hand... Um, and when I say a snap call, this is not intended to, to needle you for taking your time. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. I, you can needle me. I won the pot. No, I mean, I, I, I think I, mean, I, I would have done the same. And I think, like, when you are deep, it's. I mean, if nothing else, like, make sure you didn't misread your hand. Like, there's a lot of money on the line. It, it's 100%. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you were in the tank for four minutes. Um, so, I mean, the, the reason why this is not a hand that's indifferent is... A, it has blockers to my value range. So, you know, of course I can have aces, which are not blocking, but like kings or queens or something, you know, I'm, I'm going to have those less often. Even if I were polarized around your hand, um, it would still make sense for you to call with this because you're blocking my value range. Um, yep. But also, you know, it, I could be value betting worse as I was. And so, you know, this is the kind of, like we're not playing the ace-king-queen game here. Um, th this is a case where at least your hand is not a king in the ace-king-queen, but you may have some hand, like pocket jacks might be more like a king in the ace-king-queen game. But the hand that you have, you know, I'm actually, uh, I can be value betting worse, which means that you're profiting not just from my bluffs, but also from some of my value bets. Yeah, and as I said, that's, that's why I was comfortable calling. I probably would have ended up calling even against someone who is not as good a player as you because, I don't know, I mean, I, the whole point of checking back the turn was to induce a bet on the river. I probably wasn't expecting a bet of that sizing, but with, you know, holding the blockers to the nutted hands there, as you say, I mean, I think even against, I mean, I'm calling, it's funny, I'm calling you a good player because I can beat some of your value, 
and I'm calling the bad players that I've induced bluffs against because I don't think they have enough value. I think they're just bluffing way too often, and so I you know have to call them as well. But I will say though this this is why instincts are only worth so much because for the years where I played the most poker, you know, from let's say 2002 until 2015 or something. Um, you know, this bet was like some huge hand almost every time. And so my instincts, which are honed over those years, might have said, and were saying, like, oh, maybe you should fold. This is probably aces. Like, he's, you know, not going to. And, you know, you got to get past your instincts and s- spend time thinking through all the details and not just trust. So instincts, um, and I mentioned this in the book a little bit, there, there's, a, there's part, of, part of the human brain and in 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 the book thinking fast and slow i don't know if you've read this read book it, loved it. I, yeah yeah so in, in daniel kahneman the author lays out two different types of thinking system 1 and system 2 and system 1 is this sort of like automatic knee jerk response thinking whose only goal is to like make things as easy as possible like make things as simple and easy and just get moving you on with your life and there's it's useful system 1 in a lot of contexts but it's not that useful in poker. So here, my brain yelling, fold, he has aces. That's just system one. That's just like, take the easy way out, get this over with, don't call off your whole tournament here when there's hands that you could lose to. Um, and so you want to try to avoid that as much as possible. Having said that, and use system two, which is more deeper, reflective thinking. But having said that, though, your instincts are valuable, especially if you're um, tuned into the right kind of clues from your opponents, whether they be tells, whether they be betting patterns that are in style at the time or whatever. And so it's just, it's this constant sort of weighing of how much do I trust my gut quote unquote. And you know, there are times to trust it less and times to trust it more. And that's, that's kind of something that I think all poker players should at least recognize in themselves. And even, even just recognizing that there are two different ways to look at decisions like this, I think is very helpful. Yeah, and I, the, the way that I describe that in my book is is having like a um, having a sense of the baseline first, and then thinking of uh, being exploitative from that baseline. So knowing that you know some hands that might be indifferent between calling and, and folding, like if you just had a queen here, even even ace queen, you know that's the kind of hand that, that I am polarized around. And you may be blocking some of my value, like you're blocking my queens or king queen, but you're also blocking some of my bluffs, like my ace jack or something. So that's the kind of hand that, that as far as the solver is concerned, at, at equilibrium is indifferent between calling and folding. Which means that if I am playing perfectly, it's not going to matter what you do anyway. And if you do have even the slightest hunch of, hey, this guy seems a little bluff happy, then you can just err on the side of calling. And and even if you're wrong about that, and I'm actually playing perfectly, it's not going to be a problem for you. Now, if you're wrong to the degree that I'm actually under bluffing and you think I'm over bluffing, that will be a problem for you. But it's more of a problem like to take a hand like King Queen, which would not be indifferent at equilibrium, and to say, you know, um, this guy's not going to make thin value bets. It's a legitimate read. I mean, there are some people for whom that would be true and, and against him it would be a mistake to call this on the river but it requires a, a stronger read like knowing that it's a more significant deviation because it's not a hand that's indifferent at equilibrium um, it requires that I'm making more than a small mistake before it becomes correct for you to deviate by, by folding this um, well, that's how I conceptualize that anyway yeah I think that's a great point I mean the, the farther and I say this in my book as well the farther you're straying from optimal what you think is an optimal play the more sure you have to be and so if the play you're, make, you're considering 
is a reasonable one or at least close to it, even in optimal land, then go ahead and make it for any exploited reason you can find. Um, but if it's some wild deviation, then you got to be much more certain. Yes. Yeah, I've heard this. I've heard this explained. Um, um, I can't remember who said this, but it was something. Maybe this was Yuri. This might have been Yuri. Um, thinking about it in terms of um, frequency mistakes versus fundamental mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So if you if it's a mix, then even if you go too far in one direction, you're not going to stray too far from theory. Uh, uh, towards Matt's point um, and that's not going to cost you more too much money one way or the other so just go ahead and you know choose one but if you're going to deviate from something that isn't a mix that's when you either need you need that big read which honestly there's probably some big rewards on the other side of that if you're good at making those reads but if you make the wrong read there that is where you lose a ton of money yeah well said I agree um, so as you mentioned, you know the, the stack sizes were a bit different in in game, and maybe my shove is is more defensible. With the way that I ran it, my options the the, the only two options I was considering on the river were either a shove for one point five x pot or a half pot bet. And the salver really doesn't want me to have a shoving range at all, which is a bit surprising to me. I feel like often on rivers, um, especially in cases where you can have the nuts, um, you know, shoving. I mean, this is more true for the imposition player, but shoving is often preferred when it's like two x pot or, or less. Um, so it was a little surprising to me to, to see that the, the shove option was not used. Um, but I also think in, in tournaments in particular, going for big thin value bets. I mean, I know we've already had the conversation about variance, but this is, I think, a less appreciated version of variance. And you know, when we think about variance in tournaments, we tend to think about like, well, getting all in pre-flop. You know, you're only a sixty forty. There's a lot of variance there. But you know, a thin value bet by definition is not a high edge. Right? I mean, if, if it were a big edge, it wouldn't be thin. So you know, a, a thin value bet is it's similar to a sixty forty pre-flop. I'm not expecting to be to win often when. This bet is, is called, or much more than half the time, when this bet is called, and and I am putting a lot of chips at at risk. You know, this was a big chunk of of my stack that I was betting on the river, um, but it was all of your chips, and so the fact that you are tanking with king queen does kind of lead us that well, like is ace queen? Are you ever calling with ace queen? Or you know, like so, it, like not only can I not go as thin because of my own variance concerns but then like if you're not going to call as wide because you have variance concerns then my thin value bets go down in value because now i'm getting not getting called by as much worse so i think that like once we account for uh, icm the equilibrium here ends up being like i'm doing less thin value betting and you're doing less calling because neither of us want that that variance and i mean that still doesn't necessarily mean my my shove was a mistake but it is i mean this is something that i've been working on is like Big thin value bets are just like a staple of, of cash gameplay, and uh, they are not so great in tournaments. Um, yeah, I think there's probably some truth to that. What you're saying, I, I think um, part of what's going on. I mean, you could check the solver outputs to see if they agree, but I think part of what's going on is like before when I was talking about my turn checkback range. Even if I get this queen into it, this king queen or some queens. A lot of it is like jacks, tens, nines, like that kind of stuff. Um, and this king is, is just a really bad card for that range. Uh, and I really, I can't, I, I just have so few hands that I can really call with. And so 
on the one hand, I am surprised that the solver never wants you to shove because you would think that you'd want to get me to fold those hands. But on the other hand, it's really hard for me to call a thin value bet with much here. And so, and you probably don't need a bet very big to get me to fold jacks or tens or nines. And like once the king hits the river, I think I'm just done with those hands. Um, and so it is surprising because we've seen so often in these solver outputs where if the turn goes check, check, you usually size up because I've capped my range pretty severely by not, you would think, by not betting that turn card. And so you now have the nut advantage and you can go big. Um, on the, you're, you're the one that can have a good hand at this point and not me, and so you can go big. But I think this particular river card really changed that dynamic mm-hmm. a bit because um, now I just don't, now my range is just toast, basically. Uh, and so there's no need for you to go big. If you if I if you have some, if you have a bluff, you don't need to go big. You can get me to fold for less, and it's I'm just not going to call thin for a big bet. So why have it? I, I, that's what I would guess is going on with that solver output. But again, you'd have to really study it to be sure. Yeah, I, I think there is an element of that. I think it's also like especially once we get into the 150 percent pot region, like it's not oh, it's yeah. not that hard for you to have a king. I mean. At least right. as far as the solver is concerned, you should sometimes have ace king here. You should have some queens. Pocket eights is is a um, a very good slow playing hand for you on on the turn. Um, so you, it's not like you're lacking in hands. Like I, I need to be able to target those weaker hands in your range. At some point, yes. if I'm betting so large that it's just like you can call with a king and, and fold when you don't have one and you're not really in danger of being bluffed, then what I've done is I've made your life easy, and that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do. Like I'm trying to to create a situation where you have tough decisions. And and that may require sizing down on a river card that's like introducing some, I mean, not literally nutty, but I mean, as far as the solver is concerned, for 150% pot bet, like Ace King is nutty. So, you know, I, I need to be able to target the non nutty portion of your range. And be, because this is a river card that does, I mean, A, you weren't capped when you checked the turn, you can check some strong hands. But B, this is a turn card that introduces some new strong hands in a river card, introduces some new strong hands into your range. Um, there is, there's less room for me to target the, your, your medium strength hands with large bets. Whereas if you were totally capped, you know, I could bet a thousand times the pot and you're medium strength hands would still have difficult decisions um, because you never have strong hands that can snap call that. Yeah, that's a great point. And that, that's the other half of that is that I can have stuff to call with that beats you. And so why would you want to go big and just lose the maximum against all my good hands and um, win the same thing you would have won probably against the rest of my range? And so all of that kind of adds up to a small bet. Yeah. yeah. One one last thing I'll say on this. I did a little bit of research, and this hand happened with about 85 players left. And so you were still fairly far, pretty far from the final table, but probably um, somewhat deep into the money. And I'm not sure how to, uh, you know, justify those two things in terms of ICM. Yeah, ICM is tricky, man. Um, but I, I will say that it, it should be, because we're so far from any kind of real pay jumps, I think it should really be kind of a tie break factor in terms of how we, I would think about this. Like, you know, in the super borderline spot, I would be more inclined. Like, if if Andrew shoved and I viewed the call as more borderline than I than I did, then I'd probably end up folding because we are deep in the money. But honestly, though, I don't know. I mean, I'm changing this philosophy a little bit as I study more ICM spots. But for most of my career, I've I don't want to say I've ignored ICM completely because that's not entirely true. But I definitely don't worry as much about busting deep in the money as I think as I think most tournament players do because I'm trying to accumulate chips and you know 
make a run at the final table. Now, when and the more extreme example is like when there's a pay jump coming up very soon and it's substantial, or or you know if you're at the final table, of course, and you have like the second or third biggest stack and there's a bunch of short stacks, you don't want to go to war with the big stack. That kind of basic stuff I was always doing, but at this kind of like more um, at the level of 85 players left with 23 blind stacks, I'm just looking to accumulate chips. I'm not worried about like, well, I can still have 12 blinds if I play a certain way. Like, you know, that's, there's some value to that. But to me, I'd rather like try to try to turn my 23 blind stack into a stack that can really threaten more people. And then I can have more options at my disposal of how to play. And all of a sudden, like I can make a run at trying to win. And I'm not saying it's wrong to consider ICM here. It's definitely not. I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, someday there's going to be a solver that tells you exactly how much to factor in at this point. But I think you don't go too far wrong by, at this particular stage, mostly ignoring it and using it only as like a very tiebreak factor. Especially in this particular tournament, because at this point, the pay jumps were around $1,500, and that was almost a million dollars for first. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think even like we talked about using heuristics before, and with when it when it comes to something as complicated, like ICM is already just an approximation, much more so than like uh, I mean, uh, solves to, to some extent are approximations, but like they're much better approximations. We really don't have a great way of capturing um, of, of putting a price on a stack right now or getting a sense of like what exactly variance is worth. So we really only have heuristics for guiding this situation, and I think the like just because it feels deep like you're actually still a long way from the final table and you should be more focused on accumulating chips than like oh my god it's day three of a wsap event don't blow it like i think that's a very good heuristic totally yeah and that and that's a trap that a lot of people fall into is that latter way of thinking and that's so why I, I really try to like overcompensate to avoid that basically yeah i mean i think there is that 10 like everyone feels like they're close to the final table right, right. but like only 10 percent of us are actually going to make it so <laughs> yes it's like when you get to day five in the main event, which I know you've done several times, Andrew, and it feels like, oh my god, I'm so close. But no, you're not. Like you got to get through 300 people or whatever. Like it's, you know, it's still. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking at this. Um, I'm looking at the um, payouts from this tournament, and um, like I said, um, so basically it's crazy eight. So first place is guaranteed um, 888,888 dollars. Um, so basically a million in my mind um they did that so the year you What's got 100k between friends <laughs> yeah not 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 much not much when we're talking numbers this big but what's funny is they did this tournament last year and um the turnout was not what they expected but they still had to guarantee that amount that amount for first so all the other payouts got screwed and this year they just took it off the schedule uh. <laughs> Did they give you seven hundred and seventy-seven thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven? So what? <laughs> <laughs> did, did, uh, didn't um, you win the uh, the Lucky Sevens tournament? Yeah. See, well, I won the Crazy Eights online, but it wasn't this one that guarantees. Oh, okay. um, um, I knew you won this one fake of these. million <laughs> for first. Yeah, yeah. The one I won was Crazy Eights, but um, it only paid one hundred twenty-five k up top. I think with that one, and I think probably this one as well. Um, part of the gimmick is is eight-handed. Right. So it was an eight-handed tournament, probably eight-minute levels. But yeah, they were not going to give a million dollars to first place in all online tournament. <laughs> we all oh, we all would have played that. <laughs> fired over and over if that were the case. Um, in not too long, I have to go 
pick up my son from school. Was there something else you wanted to cover that we can get into for a few minutes? I, I, or was I was actually about to say that uh, I also will need to go in a moment, and I wanted to give you okay. if there was anything, uh, any last things you wanted to say about the book or anything else. Um, well, I would say um, I think the new book, The Poker Brain, it's, um, I hope, a really good way for people to see improvements in their thinking without you know, getting a pretty good bang for their buck. So it's, you know, hopefully there's, even if not every single concept is going to be new to every player, I think a lot of the stuff we've discussed, I get into in more detail in the book and other concepts as well. And I, I think just seeing how I apply them to real hands can really be helpful for pretty much everyone. And it's not the kind of thing where you're going to have to sit there and study it and memorize it for, you know, hours and hours to really get the benefit of it. It's the kind of thing where hopefully somewhere in the book you'll read it and there'll be a leap in your thinking and it'll be immediately helpful. So it's not the game plan, which is simply a series of rules to follow that should be immediately helpful, but it's, it is somewhat similar in the sense that I'm trying to introduce concepts that can see results in your, at least in your process, pretty quickly and not something you have to like, spend a lot of money or spend a lot of hours to incorporate into your game. And I know you're a great poker author as well, Andrew, and you, I think, also would believe in the power of books as a, as a teaching tool, as a cost-effective, time-effective teaching tool, and that's what I hope my book is. Uh, I, I certainly do. And uh, when and where will the poker brain be available? Oh, right. It's not even available yet. Uh, it's going to be on Amazon, and um, by the time this airs, hopefully it should be available for everyone to purchase on Amazon. If it's not, something has gone slightly wrong, but um, hopefully, hopefully nothing will go too wrong. You know, this publishing, self-publishing process, there's a million I's to dot and T's to cross, and I'm just doing the final little touches on that now. But I'm hoping for, this. To, again, we're speaking on June 2nd, I'm hoping for a soft launch this weekend where I tell friends about it and you know have people buy it and make sure everything's going okay and then telling the wider poker universe about it next week so that hopefully by the time this airs everyone will be able to get it on Amazon great well congratulations on uh, completing your third book and thanks for taking the time to talk to us thanks and congrats on your new book too Andrew I can't wait to read it I haven't haven't had the chance yet but I would be very excited to I appreciate that uh, alright take care guys alright thanks okay, Andrew and Carlos this was fun I know you won't.